Let's go ahead and get started with session number two. What does it mean to be evangelical? Um, last week, you know, as we started and talked about the story of Highlands and who we are and where we're going, now kind of from here through the rest of the class, the way it, it breaks down is to give you a picture and understanding of who we are. If you kind of think of um, concentric circles or just, you know, when I had, when we did this class in a classroom, I'd write up on the board one really, 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 really big circle. And then I would take a, a second circle and I'd do a little bit inside there and then we'd do another circle. And so we kind of talk about, you know, what makes Highlands Highlands, but we're a part of a larger story and also part of a larger denomination and a larger uh, family of of evangelicals. And so we draw the circle on the board, if you can imagine it, you know, Highlands is an evangelical church. So we're going to talk about broad brushstrokes today, uh, what we mean that we believe and teach and practice and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, And then kind of the getting a little bit more narrow within the the evangelical world or or circle. Uh, We're also a reformed church. And so we'll talk about next week, Pastor Mercer will be here and talk about what does it mean that Highlands is a reformed church. And then even within the reformed tradition and the history and theology, where the circle gets a little smaller, we're a Presbyterian church. And so uh, the week after that, we'll be talking about what does it mean that Highlands is Presbyterian. And as was talked about last week, and then the circle gets real small, we're Highlands Presbyterian Church in Ridgeland, Mississippi. So what makes us, even within the PCA, even within our denomination, uh, what makes our DNA and our lifeblood what it is? And so we kind of talked about the small circle last week. Now we're going to talk about in session two, what does it mean that we're an evangelical church? And the way I like to think about this section is... If last week we invited you to be uh, to become a part of Highland's story, uh, this week we're going to talk about and invite you to become a part of God's big story, uh, his gospel of truth, what he is doing in the world and what he has been doing in the world from before its foundation. So um, uh, my page number is probably different than yours. What's it say down there? Page 12, session two, what does it mean to be evangelical? Definition. An evangelical is simply one who believes and embraces the evangel, literally the good news of Jesus Christ and his or her life in a genuine and personal way. You see this paragraph, to become a member of our congregation, you must make a public profession of evangelical faith and submit to the government and discipline of the church. This involves wholeheartedly answering yes to five questions. And there's, there's the test. There's the big question. How do we join Highlands? When we talk about interview with elders, what does it all mean? There is a test. But guess what? I'm going to give you all the answers. In fact, here's all the answers right now. Yes. So if you get caught, if you get stumped, yes is the right answer. Of course, only if it's true of your heart and your willingness to be a part of this congregation. But so the rest of their time together in this inquirer's class, we're going to break down those three questions or those five questions. We're going to look at three today. And, and kind of as a guide to um, knowing more about our church family. So this involves wholeheartedly answering yes to five questions that we ask of all those seeking to join a Presbyterian in America. Um, we just uh, shorten that to PCA congregation. The first three of these questions focus on your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and allow you to express your personal belief in three essential truths. So we're talking about these three essential truths. In order to become a member of Highlands, you must be a born-again Christian. 
To be a Christian, as the Bible proclaims it, you must personally embrace three essential truths. And even that word born again um, in our culture has lots of different connotations. And so we're going to talk about what does the scriptures teach and say about what it really means to be born again. Um, And so, number one, uh, you must believe the bad news about yourself. The first question, uh, the membership questions, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? justly deserving his displeasure and without hope save in his sovereign mercy so congratulations good morning welcome you are a sinner you are an awful evil terrible person right (laughs) well yes the bible says yeah we're capable of all kinds of evil and sin we're sinners what does it mean to be a sinner do we uh are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we're sinners the latter is true. We sin because that's who we are. That's in our nature. Well, what if, if I ask a question like that, the, the natural question that comes after that, well, what do you mean by the, the fact that you're a sinner? What do you mean by saying that people sin? You know, again, even in, in our cultural Christianity today, that word can be charged and mean different things. And lots of people don't even like to use the word sin, but we're not afraid to use it here because the Bible talks about it. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. That comes out of the confession. In other words, think of it this way. Sin involves both fighting fighting God and playing God in our lives. Someone has said you can't break any of the Ten Commandments until you've first broken the first one. And what's the first commandment? That's right. That you'll love, you shall have no other gods before me. So every other sin then is a consequence or reality of the fact that we have in our hearts and in our lives attempted to dethrone God and to put ourselves or something else in his place. So if you think of it in terms of way back in the the Garden of Eden as a classic example, uh, Adam and Eve are created by God and God breathes their life into them and he gives them dominion and power and authority. He walks with them in the coolness of the day. They have all the blessings and privileges, not only of being created, but having a special place as the crowning of that creation where they're called to literally be God's image bearers to reflect his glory and his character to the world. But only one thing of all the things they had Only one thing God said not to do, to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. Yes, they had positive commands to to work and to cultivate, fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion and to work and to rule. But only one thing they were told not to do. And the serpent comes along and challenges and tempts them. And how does he tempt them? He says, God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to be like him. Now, first of all, Adam and Eve should have laughed in his face because they already were like God. What does God say in Genesis 1.27? Let us make man in our image. They already were like God, in a sense, reflecting his character, having a right relationship with him. But he tempts him, he said, God is holding back the very best from you. And isn't that the foundation of all every other sin? Regardless of what it is, God says, don't do this, but he's holding out on me. I want something. This seems like it gives me pleasure or satisfaction or hope. I know better for myself than God does. And so just as Adam and Eve, sometimes we take and eat or we take action. 
we disobey. God says the way to life is obedience. The way of sin, flesh, and the devil says the way to life is through disobedience. Well, Adam and Eve fell and they fought God and they tried to play God in their lives. And th- so therefore now, Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God says, for the day you eat of this fruit, what happens? You surely die. Now they died spiritually, but that should have been the end. Finito. The human experiment is over. It's done. Mankind has rebelled. But God in his graciousness and in his mercy, they don't die. He comes and has this conversation with Adam and with Eve and with the serpent. And he lays out various curses. But also within those curses are certain blessings. The first of which in Genesis 3.15 is that talking to the serpent, God says that there will come a seed from the woman and you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. There's one, um, the, the, some of you may have seen it, and you don't have to see it, and I'm not encouraging anyone to see it, but the movie uh, by Mel Gibson uh, 10 years ago, The Passion of the Christ. There's one thing that I really liked about that movie. In the beginning, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's sweating blood, and he's praying, and it's not in the scriptures, so again, um, we don't want to take it as, that's the, this is what happened. But the image, I think, is very biblical. You see this snake is kind of curling around Jesus and it's really creepy and it's really an intense emotional scene. But then all of a sudden the camera uh, shoots back and all you see is the head of the snake and it's just stuck on there. And then all of a sudden this foot comes down and kills it and crushes its head right at the beginning. That's an image from way back in Genesis 3.15. In that moment, Jesus Christ, when he says, not my will, but your will. That's the moment when Jesus had decided he is going, he's following through. He wanted that cup to pass over, but his mission was to defeat the power of sin and death in the believer's life. So we have this sin problem. According to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and so deserve the wrath of God as punishment for our sin. The worst news of all is that there's nothing we can do to change the situation because we are dead in our sins and in our, we are unable to save ourselves. We don't have time this morning, but I encourage you to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 say, As for you, Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins and by nature objects of wrath. In our culture today, what's the idea about humanity? Basically, people are good. And once in a while, well, we don't sin anymore, do we? We make mistakes. I'm not a sinner. I'm just imperfect, like everybody else. So basically, I'm good. But every once in a while, I do bad things. The scriptures say, no, basically, you're bad and you're evil. And it's only in the sheer mercy and graciousness of God that you can have non-believers who can still do loving and gracious things. But before a just and holy God who demands perfection... Though you you can have a a non-believer love their spouse well or do great acts of kindness and mercy and service and great things, before just and holy God, they're like filthy rags. They don't measure up. Sin is serious. And the reason why we take sin serious at Highlands is because we also take the gospel seriously. Your view of sin will 
tell me what your view of grace really is. Because if you don't think the problem is that deep or that bad, then God's grace and mercy isn't that big of a deal either, is it? You know, if, if you have kind of a, a, a that sin is, is, you know, kind of puts me here and God is kind of here, well, how far that gap is that needs to be bridged? Not very far, right? But if you recognize the fact that we're sinners and we're like way down here, and again, it's a bad analogy because I don't have arms, no human being has arms long enough or tall enough to, to show the difference in the gap between a sinful human being and God's holiness and justice. And then when you see sin being that big of a deal, then when you hear the good news about Jesus Christ, man, oh man, is that powerful. Is that freeing and loving and exciting. But the problem with our sinful condition is that we're unable to do anything. I'll never forget when, my, um, when I was a, a, a young teenager, my grandfather passed away, and that was the first time that anyone close uh, in my life had passed away. And so it was really the first time that I had been near death or thought about death. And I remember what kind of struck me uh, at the um, wake or calling hours, um, seeing my grandfather in the casket for the first time. He was in a full suit, which he never really wore a full suit, except for, you know, special occasions. So first it's like, who's that guy in a suit? And he was in a suit. And I remember thinking he had a really nice tie on. I'm like, we're going to bury him in those nice clothes. And, you know, it's like, oh, we could use that tie. Um, but I remember thinking, he's dead. How did he get himself dressed? You know, obviously someone, someone else did it, right? Because what's a dead man capable of? Nothing. He can't even tie his own tie. He can't even put on his own cufflinks. The issue is not about, you know, if we think of it in terms, and we'll talk more about this next week, free will or God's sovereignty. The issue is what are we even capable of in the first place? And the fact is that we're sinners. We're dead. So cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. <laughs> Why is that good news? Why can we be cheerful about it? Because we have a great Savior. And the story doesn't end there. To sum up, as the Bible makes clear, things are worse than we could ever imagine. We're living in spiritual death now and only have hell to look forward to in our future. However, God did what we could not do, which leads us to the second essential truth we must come to believe. You must believe the good news about Jesus Christ. And this is the second question for membership in the PCA. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and Savior of sinners? And do you rest, or receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? You must believe the bad news about yourself, but you must also believe the good news about Jesus Christ, and namely that who Jesus is. There's lots of confusion um, and manipulation, even in the church, about who Jesus really is or what He really did. And this is so important to talk about the person and work of Christ, not only for ourselves, but in a culture that is starved for heroes. Why are we, why are we so obsessed with finding heroes? Well, we've got the ultimate hero right here in Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God who did what we couldn't do, who lived the perfect life in our place. We must believe who Jesus is. John 1, 1 and 14 says that Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, you'll hear, I remember, you'll hear it said a lot around here, but I'll never forget it was Pastor Mercer who once said it in a morning prayer a couple years back. 
saying, you know, oh God, we prayed that Jesus would become more and more beautiful to us rather than just useful. That he is beautiful in and of who he is. Some people, when we, we view God or we view Christ, we view him as if he were a vending machine or a genie in a bottle. Uh, I've been told the gospel is going to make my life easier or better. Well, you all can tell, I don't have to teach anybody here this morning. You all know when you become a Christian, life doesn't get any easier. In fact, sometimes it gets harder. Storms happen, both physically, literally, but also emotionally. Things come on. And so, what is this all about, God? I thought my life was supposed to be, you know, happy, happy, happy. doesn't always have that, that effect. So what is it about? Jesus, is he useful or is he beautiful? Simply for who he is and for what he has done. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, but also that he's the Christ. He is the promised Messiah of Israel who was sent to redeem his people. Acts 2, 3, uh, 36, Isaiah 53. So we're talking about Genesis three fifteen. In some ways, if we were to divide the Bible between old and new, we could divide it Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis three fourteen, and then Genesis three fifteen all the way to Revelation 22. Because from Genesis three fifteen, when when God first announces the first proclamation of the gospel, what's called the Proto-Evangelion, Everything else in the scriptures is simply the story of God fulfilling that promise. The story of the drama of redemption from then all the way to the consummation that we will all be a part of in the new heavens and the new earth. Secondly, you must also believe what the Bible teaches about what Jesus did. Namely, that Jesus is the savior of sinners whose perfect life of obedience supplies the righteousness which God imputes or credits to us so that we might be declared righteous in his sight. Romans three twenty one and 22. The image here that the scripture uses is like clothing. If you ask yourself, okay, I, I, I'm with you on the fact that I'm a sinner uh, and that God is holy. So how do I even come into his sight without getting zapped? How can I even approach him if he can't stand to be in the presence of sin? How do I even get into his presence? Well, Paul uses this image of clothing of being cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. Think of it as like a robe. You remember in the, the parable of the prodigal son, what Tim Keller calls the prodigal God? Because it's really a lot more about the father than it is either about the younger son. And it's probably more about the elder son than it is about the younger. But we won't go into that now. Anyhow, what happens to the prodigal son when he returns home? The father puts the royal family robe upon him. And this son who still probably has the stench of the pigsty upon him. Now all of a sudden is cloaked with the family robe. And he is now regal. So how do somebody who thought, did, and said something today that is sinful. How does God, how do we wake up tomorrow morning? Well for the believer we are cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at us. He sees the perfect and finished work of his son on our behalf. He knows what you did and said and thought. But he also knows what his son has done. And so as we are united to Christ, we really are perfect in that sense. We still struggle with the presence of sin in our lives. But the power of sin has been now defeated by Christ at the cross. So this idea of imputation is just simply an idea of God loving us and saving us and literally cloaking us with a robe of righteousness. 
that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin and he has purchased our pardon as our substitute on the cross. He lived the life that we should have lived, but he also died the death that we deserve to die. So when Jesus cries out, it is finished. It is really finished. And he has saved us. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what does this involve? And I know in your notebook it's not listed as these are blanks or anything. But I just want to say, how do we kind of transfer our trust from ourselves and thinking that we've got to somehow work it all out or make it or better ourselves or we've got to come before God and make ourselves clean. You hear a lot of people who struggle with that, say, I'm not worthy to go to church. I'll say, great, that's how I know you are. Join the club, we got jackets. You know, literally. <laughs> We're all sinners. How do we do that? Well, in the question, question two, you receive and rest Upon him alone for salvation. So transferring trust from ourselves to Jesus involves repenting of your sin and turning to God for mercy. Luke 18 verses 9 through 14 is the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And you remember what happens? Jesus tells us two men who go into the um, temple courts to pray. And the the Pharisee gets up there and he prays a very honest prayer. It's easy to kind of knock him down because he's a Pharisee. And they're all brood of vipers. But he prays an honest prayer. He says, God, I thank you that you did not make me like this man here, a tax collector. That I tithe. That I, you know, am honest. All these things. Well, it's true. But then this tax collector is standing on the other side. And he can't, he's so overcome by his sin and recognition of who he is before a just and holy God. That he can't even lift his head up to pray. His posture reveals his attitude. He has humbled himself before God and says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And who does Jesus say went home justified or in a right relationship with God? The tax collector. Now, both of what the, neither of them lied, but the Pharisee had the attitude. He was trusting in himself. He wasn't trusting in God's mercy or grace. He didn't recognize that he had any need at all. It's sometimes tough for us in America with our wealth and with our success and with our influence to remember that, that ultimately we are very dependent people. We kind of prize independence, don't we? But we're very dependent creatures. And sometimes even the blessing of God with suffering or heartache or pain is it reminding us that we need Him. There's something bigger than ourselves. That's a good thing. There's something greater than who we are. So we repent of our sins and we turn to God for mercy. We receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. Think of it like a gift on Christmas morning. What did you do to earn or deserve that gift? Nothing. It's Christmas. I remember even as a kid, uh, before I was a Christian or before we even went to church, but at school, um, they still at least were allowed to talk about uh, Christmas as Jesus' birthday. And I remember thinking, boy, this must be a bummer for Jesus because if I went to my birthday party and everyone exchanged gifts to one another but no one ever gave me anything, boy, I'd be really sad. So why don't, you know, why do we get to open birthday presents on Jesus' birthday? Right? We didn't do anything for it. It's not our birthday. I get gifts on my birthday. Why do I get gifts on his? Just simply opening and receiving. So we repent, but we also receive Christ as our Savior. Acts 16.31 talks in Romans 10.9. 
You know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Trust upon Christ in your heart. And finally, rest. And that word rest is so important. Rest upon his completed work of redemption rather than relying upon your own good deeds and sincere efforts at pleasing God for your salvation. Rest upon that. When you struggle and when you fall down and when you still um, are fighting sin on a daily basis, how do we keep from you know, taking anti-acids or, or depression medication about it? We do because we rest it. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has really done it all. So we're not naive or we're not just painting a broad brushstroke and say, you're not that bad or it's not that bad. Say, no, it really is. But guess what? The good news is even greater. As far as the east is from the west, so far have your sins been removed from you. God says he doesn't remember our sins. It's not that he's got, it spirit, he's got amnesia about it. It just means that he doesn't count those sins against us anymore. One song talks about they're at the bottom of the ocean. They're not accounted to us any longer. So when we do this, several things will happen. You are given new life, beginning now and lasting for eternity. John 6, 47, 1 John 5, 11 through 12, Romans 6, 23. You're given new life. Eternal life begins right now. We're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. We haven't been glorified yet. But even right now, Jesus says, I've come so that you may have life and life abundantly. What does that look like? Well, you also become a new creation in Christ. You're transformed from the inside out. We can grow. We can get better. A phrase that is often used is that God loves you no matter how you are or where you are. And that's true. But he also loves you enough not to leave you that way. He wants us all to grow and to mature as believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Just as a parent longs and hopes and desires for their children to grow. So our God, our Father, has has made us a new creation. We have a new heart. We don't need a heart bypass. We need a heart transplant. And that's what the gospel is all about, giving us a new heart. You're adopted into the family of God with all the rights and privileges that go with it. You're adopted. And there's a great movement going on right now um, about, for Christian adoption and the beautiful picture that it is um, of what God has done for us. Basically, of saying, though, you know, from an earthly standpoint, biologically, we haven't given birth to you, but we choose to take you into our family and to give you our name and to treat you and raise you and love you and discipline you and to give you all the rights and privileges. As if, basically, to treat you as if you were our biological child. What a picture of what God has done to us. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're mine. You didn't do anything to deserve it. We become adoption. There's a, a story briefly um, that is told about uh, a man who died and he didn't have any remaining children because years before, a very wealthy man uh, who didn't have any living relatives, his son had drowned uh, 30 years before in a terrible accident. And they, because there were no living relatives, they had an estate auction for all of his possessions and all of his money. Uh, nobody showed up um, uh, to the, uh, the estate tax as far as relatives were because they couldn't get any of the money. But a bunch of people did. And one of the things that was being auctioned off was a, a small portrait of the son who had drowned years before. And there was a, a maid who had taken who was a maid and also a nanny in the family 
And so she said, I have no money, I'm broke, but all I have is one dollar. And I'd like to buy that portrait. I helped raise that son. I love that boy. And I'd like to have that picture sold, one dollar. She carried it carefully home, took it at home and put it by um, her table by her bedside so that it would be right there. And as she was putting it down on the table, she felt a bulge in the back of the picture. She opened it up in the back frame and in it was a piece of paper written by the wealthy man who had died. It said, I hereby give and bequeath all of my estate to anyone who loves my son enough to buy this picture. And this poor maid was instantly wealthy. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but the reality is God comes and whoever will love his son enough to repent of their sins, to receive Christ as Savior, to rest upon his completed work, it's all of him and none of us. He adopts us into his family. And the Holy Spirit then indwells you and he empowers you to live the Christian life. How do I do it when I'm still struggling with sin? We have the Holy Spirit within us now. He empowers us. I've used this uh, analogy the other night in class. Uh, it's like if you think of a, a machine or a motor has to run, and the, the motor it runs on what makes the, the motor go, but if, if it's not plugged into some power or electrical source, you know, if you take your fridge, and if it's going to keep things cool, what happens if you unplug it from the power source? Not going to work. No matter how you know, powerful of a fridge it is, unless it's got a battery, it needs a power source. That power source for the Christian is the Holy Spirit. We still do work. We still struggle. He equips us to do different things, but he's our ultimate, our power source. Um, John, 1 John 4.13, Romans 5.5, 5, Romans 8.9. So to sum up, God, what we could never do for ourselves, God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And the question that each of us has to answer in light of this is, have I transferred my trust from self to Jesus Christ? Life and death, heaven and hell, hang in the balance. Have you repented of your sin? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you rested upon his completed work? Along with the transfer of trust, which is at the heart of becoming a Christian, a second transfer that must take place is the transfer of allegiance. It's that issue that leads us to our third and final question, or, or You must follow Jesus Christ as Lord. And we'll go quickly through this. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? This question about the Christian life, be who you are. When when we get commands in Scripture to do this or not to do that, those aren't commands as if, you know, work harder and be better so God will love you. No, he already has loved us. He's basically saying, be who you are. This is who you are now. You're in Christ. You claim to live this way. You no longer walk as children of darkness, but as children of light. So be who you are. What does that involve? It involves a life of love and obedience. Jesus says the greatest commandment is first, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, power and ability. The parallel commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The way we demonstrate our love for our Savior is by keeping his commands. He said, if you would follow me, if you come after me, Obey what I say. Do my word. We're not afraid to use that word obedience because it's as a response to his grace and mercy. God has given us the spirit to enable us to live in the faith and the loving obedience which he demands of us. Galatians 5, 16 and 22, Acts 1 and 8, Zechariah 4, 6. And what are these 
ordinary means that God uses to strengthen us and to cause us to grow. That's what we're talking about in this class and what we're talking about, the life and ministry of the church, the reading and preaching of the Bible, prayer both alone and with others, receiving of the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper. We're about to have a baptism in a few moments. Um, that we're celebrated when the church gathers for worship. So all the means of grace are beautiful and a gift from God to help live as becomes followers of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about how we do that here at Highlands on our final week. But to sum up, as sinners, not only are we enamored with self-salvation through our own good works, whatever they may be, but we're also in love with self-rule. Who sits upon the throne of your own heart? Is it you or is it Jesus Christ? Both of these must be abandoned if we are to enter into the life which Christ offers us in the gospel. And both must be constantly rejected if we are to live in Christ as he would have us live. So conclusion, as we noted when we began, we are upholding and believing the gospel message as is presented in the word of God is something we share in common with all of those who are truly evangelical. Hopefully this is a message you'd hear if you'd go next door to the Baptist church or the Methodist church uh, or any other uh, denomination which claims to be evangelical. We hold in common these commitments. But in the sessions that follow, we're going to look at some of our distinctives as PCA Presbyterians. But all of those distinctions are built upon the foundation of the gospel, which we've talked about and reviewed today. We're going to talk about Reformed theology. We're going to talk about um, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. We'll talk, we'll talk about the P word, predestination. But to be a member at Highlands, you don't have to be on board with all of that which is coming to follow. But are you a Christian? As Joseph sometimes will say, which he got a quote from one of his mentors, uh, if you can carry a rifle and you love Jesus, you can ride in my outfit. You know, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to talk about hard doctrines, but good doctrines. We're talk about Presbyterian polity. If you're struggling with a lot of that and say, I don't know, but I'm here. I love the Lord and I love this community. Praise God. Again, we're not, you don't have to be fully in line with the book of church order uh, as long as you... Uh, recognize your need for the gospel, receive it, and submit yourself to the peace and purity of the local church. Praise God. Uh, that's a beautiful part of being this covenant community. Well, let me close with a brief word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you are God, that you are just and holy and righteous, and you dwell in inapproachable light. But we are sinners and who are so far from you but would have been brought near and been adopted by the power and blood and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I thank you for your gospel, which gives life. I thank you that uh, eternity is now secure for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. We pray that that assurance would spark joy and would motivate us to strive to live uh, for holiness and righteousness. We thank you for your grace, which picks us back up when we fall down. We thank you for your love and your word of truth. And I thank you for everybody in this inquires class and i pray that they would know that love and that truth that oh holy spirit you would uh spend a, a a special measure of your power and your grace upon these servants this morning we pray that we would be encouraged that we would come back next week refreshed with open minds with open hearts and we pray all of this in jesus name amen